Hello, this is Julian Wong, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 13th to 14th, 2023 issue of the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Red States Pressure J.P. Morgan on Religion Washington J.P. Morgan Chase has become the target of a campaign by Republican state officials seeking to expose what they see as religious discrimination in the bank's business practices. Nineteen Republican state attorneys general sent a letter this month addressed to J.P. Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, accusing the nation's largest bank of a pattern of discrimination and of denying customers' banking services because of political or religious affiliations. In March, 14 Republican state treasurers wrote a similar letter to Mr. Diamond, making the same accusations. The letters said J.P. Morgan terminated client accounts due to religious beliefs, which the bank denies, and they also demanded the bank respond to detailed survey questions on issues of concern to conservatives. The survey probes policies around speech freedoms, for example, a nod to conservatives who believe employees of faith should feel free to express disagreement with workplace priorities such as diversity or climate initiatives they view as progressive. J.P. Morgan employees have been receiving emails over the past several days, making the same points as the letters, according to people familiar with the matter in a sample emailed reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. The pressure campaign comes ahead of a J.P. Morgan annual shareholders meeting on May 16th, for which an investor has submitted a resolution asking the bank to launch an investigation examining the Republican claims. The board recommends shareholders vote no. We call on J.P. Morgan Chase to stop its religious and politically biased discrimination and start living up to its commitment to an inclusive society where everyone feels welcomed, equal, and included, wrote Kentucky's Attorney General Daniel Cameron in a letter signed by 18 other Republican attorney general, attorneys general from Alaska to West Virginia. The accusations underscore a growing challenge posed to U.S. businesses by a nation riven by ideological and partisan differences. The dysfunction in Washington is driving both Republicans and Democrats to pursue their agendas at the states, which are lining us on opposite sides of thorny questions over environmental issues, abortion rights, gun laws, diversity, and inclusion. Corporations, used to operating seamlessly across 50 states, are left to straddle the growing divide. That is proving challenging. Democratic-run states, such as California and New York, are restricting their state pension funds from investing in fossil fuel businesses. Others are restricting investment in gun makers. Republican states, including Texas and Oklahoma, are responding by banning any institution that complies with such blue state rules from participating in state business such as bond underwriting. Conservative advocates say corporations are prioritizing such issues as gay rights and reproductive health access over the freedom to oppose such initiatives for reasons of faith. The letters and emails to J.P. Morgan echo this criticism, saying the bank suspended the accounts of at least three conservative, faith-based organizations for religious reasons.
One of the accounts was opened by a multi-faith group, the National Committee for Religious Freedom, run by Sam Brownback, former Kansas governor and Trump administration ambassador-at-large for religious freedom. When trying to make a deposit a few weeks after it was opened last year, a teller told Mr. Brownback the account was closed. J.P. Morgan engaged with Mr. Brownback, blaming the suspension on a failure to receive information it needed for regulatory reasons. According to a transcript of a call addressing the issue and reviewed by the journal, Mr. Brownback remains unconvinced. We need to bring these practices to light so that banks will no longer think they can get away with this kind of discrimination. Mr. Brownback said in a filing urging support for the shareholder resolution on May 16th. J.P. Morgan denied the claims, but declined to address details of individual accounts. We have never and would never exit a client relationship due to their political or religious affiliation, said a spokesperson in a statement, also noting the bank serves 50,000 accounts with religious affiliations. The Republican officials are also demanding the bank publicly clarify its position on issues at the center of conservative causes. The request comes in the form of an investment tool called the Viewpoint Diversity Score Business Index, which allows investors to screen companies for biblically responsible management and a faith-based worldview, according to the surveyor's website. The survey asks questions about whether a company assures employees are free to say what they want on social media. It also asks how much money the survey respondent has donated to well-known liberal nonprofit advocacy groups. The index is designed as a mirror image of other such surveys, conducted by ratings agencies or research universities, which typically show how extensively an institution is committed to environmental, social, and governance-based investing, or ESG which has become shorthand for an array of causes, whether climate or social issues, that are often championed by progressives. The letter from the Attorneys General, dated May 2nd, notes that J.P. Morgan celebrates its strong scores in a survey by Human Rights Campaign, an LGBTQ advocacy group. But when J.P. Morgan was asked to fill the survey probing positions important to conservatives, it sent the following response. Thank you for contacting J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Investor relations, said the bank, when asked to take the survey, according to an email. Unfortunately, we must decline completing this survey as we do not believe the organization is appropriately aligned with JPMC's diversity initiatives and direction. J.P. Morgan says that response was a mistake. We recently learned that the survey was emailed to a mailbox in 2021 that doesn't generally receive surveys, and, without proper reviews, the request was declined, the spokesperson said in a statement. We are actively considering participating in the survey in its 2023 round, the spokesperson said. Default fears weigh on defense industry. If the U.S. defaults on its debt and is unable to pay all its bills this summer, the pain will fall squarely on the defense industry. National security is by far the largest category of discretionary federal spending, with budgets rising over the past two years to counter China's military expansion and tackle the conflict in Ukraine. 
discretionary military spending reached three quarters of a trillion dollars last year, up from $590 billion five years ago. House Republicans, led by Speaker Kevin McCarthy, have demanded across the board spending cuts in exchange for raising the limit of the government's ability to borrow money, known as the debt ceiling. With a June 1st deadline looming, President Biden and congressional Democrats maintained that the borrowing limit should be raised without preconditions and have called the GOP stance irresponsible. The brinkmanship has driven investors from defense stocks and prompted efforts inside the Pentagon to mitigate any impact from the broader budget morass. A Goldman Sachs index of stocks that depend heavily on government revenue has lagged behind the market overall, gaining less than 4% this year compared with 7.4% for the broader S&P 500. Even if Congress and the president temporarily resolve the crisis by suspending the debt ceiling to leave time for further talks, it would eat into the time Congress needs to write and pass a budget for the fiscal year starting October 1st. That would raise the likelihood the Defense Department will have to make do with a temporary budget known as a continuing resolution. The debt ceiling standoff has already led the House Armed Services Committee to delay its work on next year's defense budget. The Republican leadership's decision to take the debt ceiling increase hostage to basically play chicken with the full faith and credit of our country also cannot do anything but jeopardize our national security, said Representative Adam Smith, Democrat from Washington, the committee's ranking member. A continuing resolution likely would inflate the costs of military programs, delay the launch of new ones, and prevent production increases. The latest Pentagon budget request includes numerous new program starts, including the collaborative combat aircraft system of uncrewed jets. Boeing and Kratos are among companies developing the aircraft. Concerns that military spending could be cut, or, or at the best delayed, in a debt ceiling fight, have weighed heavily on the investor sentiment toward the biggest military contractors. Shares in Lockheed Martin are down this year more than 7%, with General Dynamics and Northrop Grumman off 15% and 20% respectively. Rob Stollard, a defense analyst at Vertical Research Partners, said the stock's performance reflects a wall of worry among investors over the broader budget debate. House Republicans have proposed capping discretionary federal spending at 2022 levels and limiting growth to 1% a year for the next decade. Those limits would apply to discretionary military spending, which, at $751 billion, made up about 44% of the government's discretionary spending last year, according to the Congressional Budget Office. While Republicans are seeking a spending freeze, Many members have voiced support for a larger increase in the military budget, though it would come at the cost of cuts in other areas. While defense company executives have been loath to quantify the impact of a disrupted budget, some have tried to position themselves as more protected than others. KBR, a company that provides logistical support for the military overseas and for the U.S. space program, thinks services in those areas are so critical that the government can't cut back on contracts, 
Chief Executive Stuart Brady said. What we're doing in space can't be turned off, he said. Spending by the Pentagon and other agencies with national security missions tends to be uneven, with large contract awards skewing spending in any given month. That pattern often leaves them unaligned with the flow of tax revenue into the Treasury, requiring a borrowing to close the gap. The prospect of a disruption in federal spending during the summer months is particularly concerning. Contract awards tend to surge in the run-up to the end of the government's fiscal year end on September 30th, said executives and analysts. Debt talks continue through weekend. Washington. Congressional and White House staff plan to continue talks over the weekend to avert a U.S. default, as lawmakers expressed increasing urgency about reaching a deal and a nonpartisan report confirmed that the United States could fail to make required payments in early June if Congress doesn't act. U.S. lawmakers are at a stalemate over raising the debt limit, which is critical to the smooth functioning of the government and global economy. Republicans, who controlled the House, recently passed a bill that would raise the borrowing limit while also cutting government spending. President Biden has insisted that lawmakers raise the debt limit without attaching any other policy changes, while saying he was open to separate talks on taxes and spending. The Congressional Budget Office said Friday that the United States government faces a significant risk that it would be unable to pay all of its bills in the first two weeks of June unless the debt ceiling was increased, a projection largely in line with the latest estimate from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. The warning came on the day that President Biden and congressional leaders had been supposed to hold a second meeting to chart a path forward on lifting the debt ceiling but the meeting was postponed until next week. Staff-level discussions are expected to con continue through this weekend. The exact timing and details of a debt limit breach will, will remain uncertain through May, the CBO said, because federal tax collections and spending might differ from projections. If the government can get through the first two weeks of June without missing a payment, it could potentially avoid a debt default or other missed payments until at least the end of July the CBO said. That is because of individual and corporate quarterly tax payments due on June 15th and additional extraordinary measures that become available to the Treasury Department at the end of June. The White House continues to insist the debt ceiling and spending are separate issues. We're running out of time to avoid a catastrophic default, and MAGA Republicans are still playing Russian roulette with our economy, tweeted Senator Chris Van Hollen, Democrat from Minnesota. House Republicans have put a deal on the table. The president may not like it. Counter with a deal, said Senator Bill Cassidy. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. YouTuber admits crashing small plane. A YouTuber admitted he purposely crashed a small plane in California in 2021 to get video views and then obstructed a federal investigation into the crash by destroying the plane, authorities said. Trevor Jacob, 29, had previously denied he crashed his single-engine plane to draw attention, according to federal prosecutors in California's Central District. 
His video of the crash has more than 3.1 million views and shows him jumping out of the plane while it plummets to the ground. Prosecutors said this past week that Mr. Jacobs signed a plea agreement and will plead guilty to a charge of destruction with the attempt to obstruct a federal investigation. Mr. Jacob, a 2014 Olympic snowboarder turned influencer, faces up to 20 years in prison. He admitted in the plea agreement that about two weeks after the crash, he went to retrieve the plane wreckage and destroyed it. The crash raised suspicion among pilots and investigators, who said they wondered why he didn't try to radio for help or restart the engine before he jumped out. Mr. Jacob and YouTube's parent company, Google, didn't return requests for comment. His lawyer, Carrie Curtis Axel, said, Trevor is taking full responsibility for his mistake in judgment. Mailboxes get locks in bid to deter theft. The U.S. Postal Service is installing new locks on some of its traditional blue mailboxes and making it harder to access others as part of a nationwide effort to crack down on mail theft. The stepped-up security measures are intended to stop a rise in mail-related crimes, including check theft and fraud, change of address scams, and counterfeit postage, the Postal Service said Friday. It will install 12,000 high-security collection boxes across the United States that it said will make it harder for criminals to access mail dropped inside. The program will start in areas it is deemed as high-risk. An additional 49,000 collection boxes will get new electronic locks in an effort to prevent criminals from targeting letter carriers for their keys. The USPS currently uses a universal key, known as an arrow key, to access collection boxes, outdoor parcel lockers, cluster box units, and apartment panels. Supervisors assign these keys, generally one per route, to letter carriers for use on collection routes. An August 2020 internal audit by the U.S. Postal Inspection Service found the Postal Service's control of its arrow keys was ineffective. Criminals who illegally obtained the keys used them mainly to steal mail for financial crimes, including altering checks to commit check fraud. Pollution rules rely on tricky tech. The Biden administration's pursuit of a carbon-free electricity grid leans in part on a technology with a history of unfulfilled promises. Carbon capture is the technology many U.S. coal and gas-fired power plants are planning to deploy to meet proposed new limits on greenhouse gas emissions announced by the Environmental Protection Agency this past week. Only one commercial power plant in North America is currently operating with carbon capture. Its experience hasn't been as smooth or climate-friendly as proponents of the rules might hope. That plant, the Boundary Dam Power Station Unit 3 in Canada's Saskatchewan province, turns locally mined coal into enough electricity for 100,000 homes. One of the plant's generating units is outfitted with a $1.1 billion carbon capture system, which utility officials say is now collecting around 80% of the unit's carbon dioxide emissions, some 875,000 metric tons in the past year. Getting to that level took substantial investment. 
the facility was plagued with fly ash contamination that fouled the capture system for several years after it began running in 2014, requiring modifications and additions of new equipment. The destination for all that captured carbon dioxide isn't particularly green. Three quarters of it is pumped underground to squeeze more oil out of a field 36 miles away operated by a different company. A solution that only adds to the problem of global greenhouse emissions. The unit is designed to operate until 2044, but Boundary Dam's owner, Sask Power, says the benefits of operating a coal-fired power unit using carbon capture technology are becoming less apparent. Utility operators in the United States will be in the same boat as we are, said Rupin Pandya, president and chief executive of Sask Power. President Biden has set a goal for the United States to fully produce carbon-free electricity by 2035. The proposed new EPA rules are expected to give utilities options for cutting CO2 emissions, such as by installing new carbon capture systems or switching to cleaner fuels such as hydrogen. Supporters say the rules will help speed up the progress of carbon capture. Electric utilities have been reluctant to adopt the technology because it costs too much, not because it doesn't work, according to Jay Duffy, litigation director for the Clean Air Task Force, a Boston-based environmental and research organization. The EPA said that 120 natural gas plants and 200 coal-fired plants would be affected by the proposed rules. The EPA said there were plans already for 60% of coal generation units to go out of service by 2040. Mr. Duffy said retrofitting an existing commercial-scale 300-megawatt natural gas plant with carbon capture would cost $372 million dollars while retrofitting a similar-sized coal plant would cost $600 million, based on recent estimates from the Energy Department. For new plants, the cost would be about 10% less, he said. Some U.S. power industry experts are skeptical of the Biden administration's push, saying that carbon capture needs a longer test drive before it is ready for the green energy highway. We need to learn about the operational challenges, maintenance issues, data, and how you optimize the system before we can be building whole fleets of carbon capture and storage technologies," said Neva Espinoza, Vice President of Energy Supply and Low Carbon Resources at the Electric Power Research Institute. The only commercial-scale power plant in the United States using carbon capture, the Petronova coal-fired plant in Texas, closed its $1 billion carbon capture unit in 2021 or 2020 after three years work on boundary dams carbon capture system began in 2011 the equipment uses chemical amines compounds that bond with both sulfur and carbon after the coal is burned the amines capture and prevent both smog from excuse me capture and prevent both smog forming sulfur dioxide and planet warming carbon dioxide from leaving the smokestack. Hiccups started after the plant began operating in 2014, according to plant director Greg Milbrandt. Fly ash, which is a product of coal combustion, degraded and contaminated the chemical amines, and required plant operators to install additional equipment, he said. 
That meant the plant could only capture 35% to 50% carbon dioxide for several years, Mr. Milbrandt said. Nine years later, we're just kind of getting a really good handle on how to deal with and manage it, Mr. Milbrandt said about the fly ash problem. Egypt refuses to block Moscow's military flights. Egypt has ignored U.S. requests to close its airspace to Russian military flights. American and Egyptian officials said, testing the limits of Washington's ability to choke off Moscow supplies ahead of an, ex of an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. The United States and Ukraine persuaded countries including Turkey, Jordan, and Iraq to cut access for at least some Russian military planes last year after the invasion of Ukraine, forcing Moscow's aircraft to fly 2,000 extra miles and up to five hours further to reach strategic bases in Syria. But Egypt has permitted Russian overflights, giving Moscow a circuitous but certain path to Syria, where its forces have helped President Bashar al-Assad in a civil war in recent years. U.S. officials say Russia has used the flights to ferry weapons to Ukraine from Syria. The U.S. and Egyptian officials said multiple American officials asked Egypt in February and March to close its airspace to the Russian military, a move that would effectively block air access to Syria. Egypt hasn't responded to the request, the officials said, and continues to allow Russian flights. Asked about the request, a State Department spokesperson said, we declined to comment on private diplomatic conversations. The Egyptian foreign ministry didn't respond to a request for comment. While other countries such as Saudi Arabia also have allowed Russia to continue using their airspace, Egypt's role is critical because of its location at the strategic choke point linking Africa and Asia. Its airspace also borders that of Greece, a North Atlantic Treaty Organization member that has blocked Russian flights. The Russian military has flown more aircraft to Syria over Egyptian airspace in recent weeks, according to U.S. officials and flight records reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. The bases are among Russia's only permanent military installations outside the former Soviet Union and serve as a staging point for flights to Africa, the Caribbean, and beyond. At least seven Russian military flights went to and from Syria in the span of two weeks in late April and early May, according to flight records. Also in April, records show that at least two flights by a giant Antonov AN-124 cargo plane from southern Russia to Syria, and then returning to southern Russia's Black Sea region near Ukraine's occupied Crimean Peninsula. The AN-124 is large enough to carry vehicles and even tanks. Turkey, Iraq, and Jordan's moves to block some Russian flights add about 2,000 miles to the journey, which goes via the Caspian Sea, then Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and finally the Mediterranean Sea to reach Russian military bases in Syria. Show flight records reviewed by the journal. The new route takes more than six hours to fly from southern Russia to Syria, up from less than two hours for the shortest flights. Russia has stocks of ammunition, infantry vehicles, air defenses, spare parts, and personnel in Syria that could be, use of, could be of use in the Ukraine war, according to military analysts. 
allies consider ways to further squeeze the Russian economy. Niigata, Japan. The United States and its allies are grasping for ways to further tighten the screws on Russia's economy as the invasion of Ukraine grinds on despite the broad sanctions the West has levied on Moscow. The U.S. and European Union are weighing fresh steps to prevent Russia from working around their efforts to deprive the Kremlin of key technologies and revenue needed for the war, according to officials at a Group of Seven meeting here this past week. Officials across Europe and in Washington also are looking at how they could use Russian assets to finance rebuilding Ukraine, they say. Discussions among finance ministers from the G7 advanced democracies about how to better enforce sanctions in Russia are continuing, and President Biden and other leaders from G7 nations are expected to take up the issue when they meet in Hiroshima this month. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the United States would take further actions to disrupt Russia's attempts to evade sanctions, including by focusing on sharing intelligence about potential sanction violations and pressuring companies and governments to comply with the rules. The United States and its allies already have targeted much of Russia's economy, cutting off exports and advanced technology, imposing novel sanctions on oil exports, and freezing Russia's central bank reserves. Western officials acknowledge they have gone as far as they can to squeeze Russia's economy without hurting it so much that they endanger their own economic growth. While Western officials see their sanctions hampering the Kremlin's war effort, the penalties have been less effective than some officials had hoped. The Russian economy is on track to grow 0.3% this year, according to the International Monetary Fund, and Ukrainian officials have found banned Western technology and Russian munitions on the battlefield. European and U.S. officials have dispersed across Europe and Central Asia to warn governments and companies that they risk facing penalties if sanctioned goods pass through their jurisdictions en route to Russia. Of particular concern are countries showing large increase in trade with Russia, a group that officials say includes Turkey, Kazakhstan, and Serbia. In meetings in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, U.S. officials distributed a list of sanctioned Western technologies that they were concerned were being routed into Russia via their countries. On the list were integrated electronic circuits as well as radio equipment, according to a copy of the list viewed by the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. officials also provided documents illustrating common ways that Russians try to evade sanctions by setting up front companies to send materials through third countries. U.S. officials provided similar warnings in meetings across Europe, where officials have at times struggled with enforcing their own sanctions. In a sign that the EU is starting to embrace more aggressive measures long used by the United States, the bloc is looking at sanctioning eight Chinese companies that have provided electronics to Moscow. Enforcing the sanctions is expected to be a long-term effort Ms. Yellen has said some sanctions on Russia could remain even after the end of the war. Russian schemes to evade sanctions will continue to evolve over time, creating a challenge for Western officials charged with preventing that. It's a cat-and-mouse game ultimately, said Maria Snegovaya, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. 
You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Beijing's diplomacy poses risks for Europe, official says. Brussels. China's push to reshape the world order poses growing challenges to the European Union, and future relations will be shaped by how Beijing acts toward Ukraine and its willingness to avoid conflict with the United States over Taiwan, the bloc's top diplomat said Friday. In a paper circulated to European Union member states ahead of a meeting of foreign ministers on Friday in Sweden, where relations with China were to be debated, Josep Borrell said the bloc must react to new economic, political, and diplomatic challenges from Beijing. Tensions between China and the European Union have been rising for several years, a shift that intensified after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with many member states seeing Beijing as largely taking Russia's side. Mr. Borrell's warning about China follows recent comments from European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, that Beijing is seeking to position itself at the center of a new world order. In 2019, the bloc labeled China simultaneously a competitor, potential partner, and systematic rival. Mr. Borrell, echoing recent comments by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, said the challenges China presents to the EU are growing. In the paper, Borrell warned of potential hostilities over Taiwan and, for the first time, spelled out a strategic position for the bloc on the politically sensitive issue of Taiwan. The European Union hasn't previously reached a common stance regarding the island, which Beijing reviews as a rogue province. Many European national leaders have dodged or disagreed on the issue of Taiwan, fearing alienating China which is among the EU's top trading partners. China has signaled impatience with Taiwan's increasingly assertive international posture and anger with closer ties between Taiwan and the United States, increasing the risk of a clash. The European Union needs to be prepared for scenarios in which tensions increase significantly, Mr. Borrell said in the letter. The European Union must engage with China and the U.S. in maintaining the status quo and de-escalating tensions in the Taiwan Strait. There are tensions within the bloc about how to approach China. Some member states, such as Lithuania, the target of a Chinese trade embargo, embargo because of its ties with Taiwan, have called for a much firmer approach that sees Beijing, like Moscow, as a threat. Major powers, including Germany and France, however, have sought to smooth relations with Beijing, prizing deep economic ties. French President Emmanuel Macron visited China in early April and called for deeper European and Chinese cooperation. The EU paper also said China's decisions concerning the war in Ukraine would have deep impact on European Union ties with the bloc, warning that relations could sour if China doesn't push Russia to withdraw or supports Moscow's war effort. China is set to send a peace envoy to Europe for talks next week, and recently has positioned itself as a peacemaker over the war. It is also it also is threatened retaliation against the European Union over possible sanctions on a handful of Chinese companies providing dual-use goods to Russia. 
Despite the challenges, Mr. Borrell said Europe must avoid reducing engagement with China and the government. U.S.-China talk to smooth tensions. Beijing. An unexpected burst of diplomacy between the United States and China this past week points to a growing desire in both capitals to begin stabilizing relations after months of freefall. The question of how to achieve that and what comes next is much more difficult to answer because of high levels of mistrust running through Beijing and Washington, especially when it comes to the most sensitive areas of the relationship, such as Taiwan. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan convened more than eight hours of talks with China's top foreign affairs official, Wang Yi, during two days in Vienna this past week. In Beijing, meanwhile, U.S. Ambassador Nicholas Burns met with Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang and Commerce Minister Wang Wentao in recent days. The talks sought to break the ice up a bitter few months after the U.S. shot down what was seen as a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon in February, and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met with Taiwanese leader Tsai Ing-wen, defying warnings from Beijing. The balloon incident reinforced concerns in Washington about Chinese spying and led the Biden administration to cancel a rare visit to Beijing by Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Beijing saw the furor over the balloon as evidence of a U.S. effort to contain its rise as a global power. The recent meetings are important for breaking the impasse of the past few months, said Ding Ding Chen, a professor of international relations at China's Jinan University. Both countries want to stabilize the relationship, he said. The question is how to do that. The stakes are high. Besides making up the world's two largest economies, both countries have crucial roles to play in solving global challenges such as climate change. Concerns are rising that a prolonged diplomatic chill between them could split the world into geopolitical blocks, like during the Cold War, though both countries say that isn't what they want. Official accounts of the recent meetings suggest both sides remain far apart on core issues. China blames the United States for the worsening of ties. During the foreign minister's meeting with Mr. Burns, Mr. Chin told the U.S. envoy the Was that Washington should be deeply reflective and return to rationality when it comes to relations between the countries, according to a Chinese statement. Before that meeting, Mr. Burns, a veteran diplomat, largely had been frozen out of meetings with high-level Chinese officials since his arrival in Beijing last year. The Biden administration has put a priority on trying to get past the recent disruptions to restore channels of communication. That effort, U.S. officials said, is in part a response to appeals from allies and partners who fear the fallout from friction between the powers. It is also intended to try to avoid inadvertent conflicts between the militaries. Statements by both countries after the meetings in Vienna said they had agreed to keep open the line of communication between Mr. Sullivan and his Chinese counterpart, Mr. Wang, signaling a desire by both sides to talk more. So far, Beijing is holding off on rescheduling a visit by Mr. Blinken after the balloon incident 
and Messrs. Sullivan. Sullivan and Wong didn't discuss specific dates for when a rescheduled visit may take place, a United States official said. Both governments also have discussed potential trips to China by Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. One Driver for Beijing is an annual summit of Asia-Pacific leaders slated for San Francisco in November. Beijing wants to smooth the way for Chinese leader Xi Jinping to attend the gathering and hold a separate summit for Mr. Biden, the Chinese officials said. On Wednesday, Mr. Biden said there had been progress in arranging, in arranging a conversation with Mr. Xi, but didn't specify when it might take place. The leaders last spoke to each other in Indonesia ahead of a group of 20 summit of major economies in November, in their first face-to-face -face meeting since Mr. Biden became president. The most significant source of tension between the two countries is Taiwan, the democratically self-ruled island that is claimed by Beijing. While the United States doesn't officially recognize the government in Taipei, it has been providing military and political support for the island as it faces what Western officials widely say is growing aggression by China. As Beijing sees it, the United States' support for Taiwan is coming close to violating the arrangement about the island reached by when the U.S. and China established diplomatic relations in 1979. Beijing says that providing any recognition to the government in Taiwan or encouraging independence would cross its most sensitive of red lines and send relations between the countries into dangerous territory. The U.S. should not side. Sh the U.S. side should not underestimate or mistake that position, Mr. Chen said. The Biden administration has said the U.S. stance on Taiwan remains unchanged. The renewed U.S.-China diplomacy is taking place against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. A bid by China to present itself as a peacemaker in the conflict has faced skepticism in the West because of Beijing's close relations with Moscow, though both U.S. and European officials recently signaled a willingness for China to play a stepped-up role in helping end the war. After meeting with Mr. Burns in Beijing, Mr. Chin flew to Europe. Analysts widely see the trip as part of an effort to restore ties with key trading partners such as Germany and an attempt to insert a wedge in Europe's relationship with the United States. Despite the evident tensions between the United States and China, the in-person meetings this week at the very least show that the business of diplomacy between the nations is starting to normalize after the pandemic nearly cut off in-person contact for three years. Before COVID-19, U.S. officials regularly met with their Chinese counterparts. Executives, investment managers, and students also played a role in helping the countries find common ground. Many of these connections were severed in early 2020 when China imposed strict border controls. Mommy Blogger Felt a Cruel Backlash Heather Armstrong, one of the most successful bloggers on motherhood in the early 2000s, has died at the age of 47. The Associated Press quoted her boyfriend, Pete Ashdown, as saying she died by suicide and that he found her Tuesday night at their home in Salt Lake City. 
After more than 18 months of sobriety, he said, she had relapsed. In a telephone interview with the Wall Street Journal Thursday, Mr. Ashdown said online bullying by her detractors had contributed to her decision to write fewer blog posts in recent years. People don't realize the impact of their words, he said. Then came what he called a dive back into alcohol, from which she never recovered. Mr. Ashdown, the founder of X Mission, an internet service provider, also remembered better times, including a trip she took with him to Paris several years ago when we felt so lucky to be alive. He recently bought a, mo a motor home. They were planning more travels this summer. Her Deuce.com blogs were occasionally profane and frequently hilarious. They included frank discussions of her struggles with alcohol and depression. On good days, I can go several hours without crying, she wrote in a 2004 post. A 2008 post on removing a raccoon from her chimney attracted 530 comments. That year, the Wall Street Journal quoted an estimate that her site could yield $40,000 a month in revenue from companies such as BMW, eager to advertise to her readers. When she criticized her parents' devotion to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it was like a bomb had gone off in my family, she said. My dad didn't speak to me for several months, and my mom was devastated. Blogging allowed her to work from home, but her periods of writer's block could be physically painful, she said. Many nights I've gone to sleep crying because I want my life back. Blogging, she added, had helped her understand why famous people turn to drugs or commit suicide. Miss Armstrong was born as Heather Hamilton and grew up in a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee, where she was a straight-A student and captain of her high school volleyball team, according to the Salt Lake Tribune. She studied English at Brigham Young University and worked as a web designer in Los Angeles. She had two children with her former husband and business partner, John Armstrong, the AP reported. In 2009, she released a memoir, It Sucked and Then I Cried, How I Had a Baby, a Breakdown, and a Much-Needed Margarita. In a 2019 book, The Valedictorian of Being Dead, she wrote about a history of depression in her family. After 12 years of taking antidepressants, she, frown she found they weren't working any longer. She described undergoing an experimental therapy in which she was put into a very deep sleep through anesthesia, anesthesia and said it was like dying temporarily. When you want to be dead, there's nothing quite like being dead, she wrote. Sometimes, she hid in a closet to scream. I tried so hard to conceal my pain from my children, she wrote. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Opinions CNN brings Donald Trump back. Declarations by Peggy Noonan Well, that was a disaster. A politically historic one. It situated Donald Trump as the central figure of the 2024 presidential cycle, certainly more compelling than the incumbent or the, or the other competitors. It will have an impact on the campaign's trajectory. When it was over, I thought, of CNN, once again they've made Trump real. It was one of those events in which you understood within 45 seconds what you were seeing. He was greeted by a standing ovation. The audience didn't surprise itself by doing this, 
it knew how it felt. From that moment, Mr. Trump dominated. He was focused, high energy, looked capable in his insane way, tanned, rested, and ready. Actually, he looked pretty much as he did in 2016. On Wednesday night at least, age hadn't taken the round side of its ball-peen hammer to him. He steamrolled the moderator, talking over her, dismissing her, as they stood together as nasty. He spoke with what seemed like conviction, backed down on nothing, made things up. It was salute salutary in that it was a reminder of Donald Trump's power, but it was all misconceived. CNN is taking incoming fire from everyone. Should it? Yes. It was early to play around like this, to introduce all the proto-presidential hoopla, to give him this solo boost, to reenact so showily all the careful respect they showed him in 2016. I don't suppose we'll ever know, but one got the impression the network agreed to a lot of conditions to get the get. He was addressed as Mr. President throughout when, considering the circumstances and after January 6th, Mr. Trump would have been just fine. He gave no sign he saw the moderator as formidable. As for the audience, a local New Hampshire official seemed to sigh in a text. I assume that was part of the deal. That wasn't Governor Chris Sununu's broad GOP. It certainly wasn't re representative of New Hampshire in general, or of New Hampshire on primary day, when undeclared voters can cast ballots for any presidential candidate in either party. The Republicans in the audience seemed more like supporters of the Trump-endorsed candidates who went down in flames last year. They sounded to me like the constricting party part of the party. They chuckled when they, he talked about sexual assault. It all sort of dragged us back into a hopeless repetition of the past. Crazy Nancy, rigged election, whack job. Like a harrowing memory endlessly looping back on itself. If I were the president of CNN, I'd feel like the Alec Guinness character at the end of the bridge on the River Kwai. Suddenly he realizes that all his work, his entire mission, only helps the bad people he meant to oppose. What have I done? The interview questions were predominantly mainstream rehashes that producers thought might make news. They were a step removed from actual debates going on within the Republican Party Mr. Trump wants to lead. Ramesh Panuru in the Washington Post offered the kind of questions he wished he had been asked. Why have so many high-level officials of your own administration, including an attorney general, national security advisor, defense secretary, and two communications directors turned against you? Are you bad at hiring people? With Republicans holding both the House and Senate in the first two years of your presidency, why didn't you get funding for the border wall? Were you rolled by Speaker Paul Ryan, or did you just drop the ball? Mr. Trump's critics, foes, and competitors will say that he often lied. Of course he did, over and over. It's what he does. Dogs bark, bears relieve themselves in the woods, we can't keep discovering this. He lied about the 2020 election, he lost it, it's been probed and educated. The January 6 riots, there is no evidence, written or otherwise, that he issued an order to send in 10,000 National Guard troops, and his acting defense secretary testified that he was never given such direction. His tax cuts, they were neither the biggest in history nor bigger than Ronald Reagan's, and the wall. He didn't build one across the border with Mexico. He spun out assertions, charges, and interpretations. 
His special talent, his truest superpower, is seeming to believe whatever pops out of his mouth and sticking to it. Observers shake their heads despairingly. He lies and people believe him. I think it's worse than that. He lies and a lot of supporters can tell it's a lie. They know from their own memory it's a lie. That, say, January 6th wasn't a beautiful day of patriots full of love, but they don't mind. They admire his sheer ability to spin it out. You're tickled by his boldness, his fearlessness, and when the lie drives the media and the stuffed shirts mad, you're delighted. He's subverting the elites and the corrupt power structures they've erected. And the great thing is, you're in on the joke, on the mischief. You get to take part. In a big lonely country that is power, I suspect that he knows this. To a Republican who might vote for him, who'd consider it but isn't committed, Mr. Trump likely came across Thursday night as on point, committed and informed, though a little wild around the edges, and maybe not totally trustworthy. But I imagine a lot of wavering Republicans might be thinking to themselves, inflation, crime, interest rates, senility, we're slipping. Joe Biden went too far left. I'm not sure people are nostalgic for Mr. Trump. I think they're nostalgic for this. I could buy a car in 2019. They may come to think Mr. Trump's malice and crazy are a price they can pay to get back to how it was when they felt less besieged. They might assume he's learned at least some practical lessons from his mistakes in 2017 to 2021. But he hasn't. That's what the town hall told us. He's exactly the same guy. For months I have held in my head two separate and opposing thoughts. One is that the more Republican candidates get into the race, the better the chances for Donald Trump. In 2016, in a field of 17, all he needed was a plurality to win, and he, all, he almost always got it. Therefore, Republicans should discourage new entrants. The second thought is that this strategy is weird and limiting. Nothing gets said, no policy or meaning of things is discussed. Everything feels frozen. It's a strategy that's all about Donald Trump's fate. It turns the primary into a waiting room. It's passive and stokes an air of inevitability. It almost disenfranchises the half or more of the party that doesn't want Mr. Trump, that needs to hear other voices. It renders the race lifeless, bloodless. It ain't human. And politics must be human. I now think Republicans should do the opposite of the Democrats and have a big, needed brawl. Wake this thing up, talk about meaning, have the argument, brawl it out. It's not all up to Mr. Trump and his fate. Nothing is inevitable. He is evitable. It is a party with a great history. Maybe it's dying, but if it is, it shouldn't be like this, without a last hellacious fight. What the heck? Everyone into the pool. Sports. The Broken Fingers of the Celtics Staff Game. Boston's 126-102 win over the Houston Rockets on December 27th was a laughter, with the Celtics all-star duo of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum racking up 39 and 38 points, respectively. The more intense competition had come hours earlier, on the same parquet floor at TD Garden. There, the, Celt the Celtics coaching staff conducted a vicious, valorizing ritual, they played pickup basketball, or rather, something like it. It's almost not even basketball, said player enhancement coach and former Oregon standout Mike Moser. By consensus, the standing game star. 
The best games are when nobody's calling nothing. We're just clobbering each other. It's fun. In the coach's game, before the matchup with Houston, someone in the scrum scratched the eye of the pickup crew's most important player, Joe Missoula, then the Celtics' interim head coach. He was elevated to the permanent job midway through the season. Missoula's vision blurred by tip-off, causing him to miss both the game later that night and the Celtics' next con cont contest. To, to his credit, said Garrett Jackson, a player development assistant, he finished the game, hit a three to win it. The Celtics' coaching staff has maintained its pickup routine over the course of Missoula's first season at the helm, which saw Boston win the second-most games in the NBA. Thursday night, the Celtics wrote a lineup adjustments, inserting defense first big man Robert Williams III into the starting lineup, and a late flurry from Tatum to, to a win in Philadelphia, evening their conference semifinal series at three games apiece. Those who play in it insist that the pickup game's rowdiness and the season's success aren't disconnected. It builds a level of trust. It creates a different type of relationship, Missoula said. Having a hierarchy is important, but sometimes eliminating hierarchy so you can get the best out of everyone is just as important. The staff pickup game is a way to do that. Optimizing organizational systems wasn't the initial goal. The game started in earnest when Missoula was an assistant on then-head coach Ime Udoka's staff last season, which ended in a run to the NBA Finals. The Celtics suspended Udoka for the season in September for a violation of team policies, involving an improper workplace relationship. Udoka accepted the top coaching position with the Rockets last month. At the time, the showdowns between assistants were simply a way for hyper-competitive former players, who now spend the bulk of their basketball time sitting on benches and clicking through film, to get some cardio in. The specifics are straightforward and demanding. A half-court, four-on-four sprint to 100, with each possession starting as soon as a team can grab a rebound or gather a made shot out of the net. Missoula elected to keep the game intact even as his title changed. I just love competition, Missoula said. As a head coach, there are very few places where you can actually get it. Over the 2010s, Missoula worked his way through low-level college assistant jobs to one with the G League's main red claws, then landed a head coaching gig at the college level in the assistant role with the Celtics. Before that, he's a, he was a pugnacious guard at West Virginia. In the 2010 NCAA tournament, he scored 17 points and harassed Kentucky star John Wall as the Mountaineers took down a top-seeded Wildcats team. For a part of that season, he shot free throws with his dominant right hand. Missoula's left shoulder had been injured the year before, and he wanted to get back on the court while his recovery continued, so he drilled the awkward shot until it became viable. These days, Missoula is self-effacing about his own game. He can still play defense, but his shot, left-handed again, comes and goes. If I hit my first three, and you have to guard me, Missoula said, if I don't, you don't. The coach's game that started as an outlet has evolved into an ethos. Part of what it makes it possible is the 34-year-old Missoula's quick rise to the coaching ranks. Most older coaches simply couldn't keep up. It's so rare, Moser said of a head coaching risking ankle sprains with the subordinates. I've never heard of it happening anywhere else. Missoula and his assistants survived Udoka's demise in part by aggregating their basketball knowledge. The assistants say they are free to have it out with their new boss, 
challenging his perspective on substitution patterns or defensive assignments. It doesn't matter who you are. He'll discuss it. He'll talk about it, Moser said of Missoula. Just like on the court. We get after it, and then it's done. There may be a more direct link between the games played hours before tip time and the ones people pay to see. If the NBA's best teams become extensions of their coaching staff, Steve Kerr's marksmanship as a player evolving to Steve, Stephen Curry's long-range dyna, dyna, dynamism in Golden State, the Celtics play a better, faster version of the style Missoula used to play. Marcus Smart, point guard in last year's Defensive Player of the Year, fights through every screen he sees. Williams streaks from sideline to sideline blocking shots. We do the game while guys are coming in, getting dressed, and they're seeing it on the monitors, Moser said. So they're seeing Joe slam somebody down, seeing me get slammed. They kind of understand. When he says be physical, this is the level he's talking about. On the sidelines before games, Celtics coaches can seem as occupied as the un as preoccupied with the unofficial competition as with the official ones. They'll haggle over their personal win-loss records, calls made or unmade. They call their own fouls per pickup custom, but an overly soft call can set off cascade of retaliatory ones, grinding the game to a halt. Joe is the biggest hack alive, Moser said before a February game. A few feet away, another member of the player development staff, Jarrell Christian, wore a splint on a finger, the result of having subbed in a month or so prior. The game has steadied Missoula's career, providing a tentpole of sweaty routine during a season in which he has lost old mentors, taken on new demands, and answered new questions. Their career has, in turn, shaken up a couple elements of the game. The thing that sucks, Jackson said in the quick tempo of an on-court trash talk, is we can't give him S about being the interim anymore. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 2023 issue of the Wall Street Journal. We read from the Wall Street Journal every Monday through Thursday at 11 p.m. Your reader has been Julian Wong. Thank you for listening.